You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. This is from uh, Daniel 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Well, good morning, everybody. We're in the book of Daniel, and actually finishing the book of Daniel today. It's been several months now that we've been in. It's been an awesome study. I am excited to, to explore this last part with you. And what's next for us? What's next week? You'll have to find out when you come. So uh, we've, been, we've been observing Daniel's life. He comes to Babylon as a 15-year-old young man in this hostile, pluralistic society. And he now, at the end of this story, is probably in his late 80s, and he has seen it all. He's seen Babylon rise and fall. Now he is uh, in the upper ranks of the Persian Empire and he has been seeing, been given these visions of, of times ahead of him, of kingdoms that are yet to come, of rulers that are yet to come. The book of Daniel has been this fascinating, complex, and mysterious story, and here we come to its very satisfying conclusion. And that's really the, the, the outline of today's sermon. We're going to look sort of at the summation of the story of Daniel. What's its story? What's its setting? What's the characters? And what does it mean for us? And then also, what's its satisfying conclusion? Why? What's contained here in chapter 12? Why is this such a satisfying conclusion? Why then is this the conclusion, the hope that you should center your life on? So that's what we're going to see today, a satisfying story with a satisfying conclusion. Before we do that, let's go ahead and and pray together. Father, 
we come before you today, this morning, we ask that you'd be with us to help us understand your word. We ask that you would be uh, gracious to us this morning and ignite our hearts and set a passion in our hearts for you to be faithful to you, to love you, to be a, a faithful exile on your behalf, Lord, here as a as representative of you. We ask, God, that you would allow the story of your people, the story of Scripture, and the story that we're within right now to become our framework for life. And we ask, God, that you would fill us with hope, that you give us courage to persevere and keep on until you return. And you, we know you will. God, I ask for your help as I preach the sermon. Give me clarity and boldness. In your name we pray. Amen. So, what is the story? It first, obviously, has a setting. And so, what we're going to do here is we're going to first take a look at a character who's not mentioned by name. He's suggested and alluded to over and over throughout the book of Daniel. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. You remember, we've talked about him a lot in the sermon series. He, he lives during the 3rd century BC, so it's hundreds of years from now before this man actually even enters into time in history. But, but Daniel here relies on this character, Antiochus Epiphanes, heaven, he- heavily to sort of set the stage and give us the backdrop for the story of God's people. So in chapter 11, verse 45, the very last verse of chapter 11 says this, referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. It says, he shall come to his end with none to help him. So Antiochus Epiphanes, he rises, he triumphs and, and, and uh, carries out this assault against the Jewish people. I'll tell you about that here in a minute. But then he re- he falls. There's a demise that's going to take place. And it continues on in chapter 12, verse 1, and says this, At that time when Antiochus falls, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people, they shall be delivered. The Jewish people, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So you remember a few weeks ago when we were uh, studying chapter 10 and we saw this angelic battle taking place in the unseen realm. Daniel's praying, asking for uh, deliverance for the people who are residing in Jerusalem, building it back up. They were facing hostile opposition. He's praying, God, bring this to an end. Make this make sense, and the, what we find out, what's revealed, is that on the way to deliver Daniel's message and to answer his prayer, Michael and another angel battle it out with a prince of Persia, this demonic entity. And so we get this glimpse into the unseen realm back in chapter 10. But here also, we get another glimpse. That same angel, Michael, will be working behind the scenes during this time of trouble where Antiochus Epiphanes is persecuting the Jewish people hundreds of years from now. And until everyone's delivered, until God brings about this deliverance. So this is all so far a reference to the persecution and demise of Antiochus Epiphanes. And here's what we know about Antiochus Epiphanes and the event that surrounds him. He serves as a type of future persecutors and future opposers of God's people. And what he does, the activity that he brings about, the salt against the Jewish people, serve as just an example of the kind of hostility, difficulty, and opposition that God's people face throughout time. Remember, he is assigned the title in chapter 8, the little horn. And we studied that the little horn, that title, is uh, a reference to the Antichrist. And the New Testament kind of fills in the gap and shows us that the Antichrist is not this individual at the end of time who's going to unite the nations against Christians, but he is rather this person or persons that are going to exist throughout all time and be hostile against God's people. So here's Antiochus Epiphanes, who's the little horn, but he is just a foreshadowing of more of that to come. 
We've already seen back in chapter 8 that he is going to put a halt to the Jewish sacrifices for 1,250 days. He does that as he enters into the Holy of Holies and sets up a shrine to Zeus and sacrifices a pig on the altar. It's called the abomination of desolation, and it becomes sort of this hallmark uh, picture, this type of future opposition that is to come. And now in this chapter, chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, look what it says. Uh, This 1,250 days that Antiochus Epiphanes puts his halt to the Jewish sacrifices uh, is mentioned again here in verses 11 through 12. It says, from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. So again, These numbers are not meant to be taken exactly. Uh, Hebrew numerology numbers in the Bible are meant to be approximate in general. They're rather flexible. They have some nuance. And so talking about the same thing, this time frame where this man, this figure is going to persecute the Jewish people. But then the New Testament, especially the book of Revelation, what it does is it takes that time frame and uses it to describe the entirety of church history. The entirety of the span of time that's going to happen after Jesus ascends until he comes. And one more thing that's interesting here. In verse 6, a few verses before, in verse 6, one angel asks one of the other heavenly beings, he says, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And the response is this, for a time, times, and half a time. And again, we we see in Revelation 11 and 12 specifically that this 1,290 days, this time, times, and half a times is used by John, picked up by John to, to characterize the faithful witness of the church that, that they're going to have during a time of opposition. So, if Antiochus Epiphanes and his assault on the Jewish people is a type of future suffering for the church that will continue till Jesus returns, here's what you need to know. We are living in that right now. This great difficulty that the Old Testament anticipates, guess what? We are dropped within that. That's the backdrop to our world and our life right now. Let me show you one more thing. Go to verse 4. It says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And then in verse 9, it says this, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So God in this vision is telling Daniel that Daniel even is not going to give, be given the full revelation and the full interpretation of these visions, these signs, these metaphors, these numbers. He says, shut it up and seal it up. It's not going to be given to you. But interestingly, In the book of Revelation, I mentioned this before, but this is just a review. In the book of Revelation, John takes up a scroll. The same scroll, likely, that Daniel here is writing on metaphorically, you know. And John picks it up and and he says, who can open the scroll? It has seven seals on it. Who Who can open it and read and govern what's to happen in the scroll? These events that Daniel prophesies about and predicts that are going to happen. And the only one who's worthy is Jesus. He opens up the seals of the scroll and presides and governs over the course of human history. And so I say all of this to show you that there is this continuity throughout the whole entire Bible that shows us that we are in this setting where it's going to be hard, where it's going to be difficult, and that should not surprise us. That's the setting. That's the backdrop of this story. We live in an age of difficulty, but... You won't be caught off guard by that. You won't be startled by that if you know your role. 
if you know which character you are in the setting of this story. And so we're going to meet two different characters here, okay? We're going to meet exiles. That's those of us who have united ourselves by faith to Jesus, and then there's everybody else. So let's first start with exile. What's your role? What does it mean to be an exile? This is the character that you play. Let me start out by saying this. Every disappointment in your life, when you feel disappointment, that can be traced back to one thing, which is your expectations, specifically your unmet expectations. The setting of the story is within an age where God's people, we will be exiles. So I think Christians are just beginning to feel this now, realize this now. And it's shocking and it's even scary, but this shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't be disappointed when things are hard. We, it, we shouldn't be disappointed that we don't have the power and that we're not in the majority, but, but rather that we're regulated to the fringes of society. The only reason we feel disappointment when we experience that is because we have the wrong expectation. But if you know your role in the story, that you're in exile, and this is just how it's going to be, then you won't feel disappointment. Instead, you'll have hope. Now this, you know, I say, you know, we're not in the majority, we're not in the power, that's normal. This has been the story of God's people literally throughout all time. We've always been regulated to the fringes. That might surprise some of us, and it's because in our time here in America, the last 200 years, we have experienced a very rare exception to the norm, which is that we have been in the power. We have been in the majority, but we see that slipping away, and that's normal. That is the rare exception to the rule, which is that we are exiles. This is not our home. We will not be found in the places of power. We will not hold the majority. That's not going to be the case because we are exiles. Here's one author I've been reading lately. Here's what he says about our current climate, our Western postmodern culture. And I want to read this to you so that we know exactly the backdrop, the culture, the atmosphere that we're in so we have right expectations and so we fulfill our role well as exiles. Here's what he says. You've left Jerusalem and are in Babylon now. You've come with what you thought were all the answers to the unanswered questions that these secular people had. But it didn't take long for you to realize that the questions weren't just unanswered, they were unasked. And they weren't questions. That is, your secular neighbors aren't looking for answers for some bit of information that's missing from their mental maps. To the contrary, they have completely different maps. You've realized that instead of nagging questions about God or the afterlife, your neighbors are oriented by all sorts of longings and projects and quests for significance. There doesn't seem to be anything missing from their lives, so you can't just come along proclaiming the good news of a Jesus who fills their God-shaped hole. In many ways, they have constructed webs of meaning that provide all the significance they need in their lives. Your neighbors are no longer bothered by the God question as a question because they are de- devotees of exclusive humanism, a way of being in the world that offers significance without transcendence. So your neighbors, your friends, our society does not share the same presumptions as you and I. They don't see the world the same way, navigate through the world the same way we do. They have constructed a way of life that gives them a sort of happiness that has nothing to do with religion. 
Think about this with me. Missionaries. Missionaries, what do they do? They go to a completely different context than their own. They have to learn a new language in order to integrate into that culture, in order to bring the light of the gospel into that culture in a way that's transferable and receptive. And then they have to stay and carry it out for a long while until they establish some credibility. Because we are now Christians in the minority, because we don't have the power, we don't have the majority, because we're exiles regulated to the fringes, guess what? We are missionaries now. It is no longer uh, uh, accurate. <laughs> this might be scandalous, but just hear me out. It's no longer going to do to simply consider yourself as a Christian. You are that. Certainly you're a Christian, but you're now a missionary. If you're a Christian, you're also a missionary because why? You live in a different context now. You have to, insider language, pious Christian language, Christianese, it won't work anymore. Nobody knows what you're talking about. Nobody else grew up in church. You have to translate now in a way that's compelling while also faithful. And then you have to stay, stay for a really long time and establish some credibility among your friends and your neighbors. You're not just simply a Christian. You, if you're a Christian, are also now a missionary. This is the role that exiles play. This should be your expectations. It's not so easy. It's not so natural. You have to work a little harder now. Now, what are we going to do? We could pout and we could feel sorry for ourselves or listen here. <laughs> we could understand that something really powerful takes place when those who don't have the power and don't operate in the majority have greater joy and greater sense of significance than those who have the power and those who have the majority. Get that? We could pout and be victims and feel sorry for ourselves and be hermits and retreat, or we could occupy our pace, place in the culture with thanksgiving. We could occupy our place in the culture with this sense of resolution and defiance, happy, joyful, thankful defiance. We could do that. So in every production, in every story, there's a script or there's cue cards. Here's your script. Here's your cue cards. It's verse 3. Look at it. It says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now this verse is talking about our glory to come. And I'll get to that more later. I don't want to say too much about that right now. But here's how the Apostle Paul in the New Testament takes this imagery and applies it. Here's what he says in Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things, all things, without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What Paul is trying to say is your future hope, your future glory should be so powerful to you now that it bleeds into your present. That it's like the future glory that is going to radiate around you is beginning to glow already now. But how? By what method? Through your attitude. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Be regulated 
to the outskirts of society, accept the fact that you're not going to have the power, you're not going to be in the majority, that's not going to be convenient, it's not going to be so simple, it's going to be pretty complex, and do so without feeling sorry for yourself. Instead, do so with triumph and resilience and hope. That, that, friends, that's pretty attractive, isn't it? That's, that's pretty otherworldly, and literally, it's like the future glory that we are going to live in is already breaking into the present through us. This is your role in the story as exiles. So here's how this goes. Again, I just want to set your expectations. We're going to look otherworldly. We're going to seem strange. We're not going to be always understood, certainly not initially understood. What happens when a person doesn't fit categories? What happens when a person doesn't fit into neat and tidy boxes? They're disliked. People hate what they don't understand. And so you remember when Jesus goes back to Nazareth, his hometown, and is preaching. And I think he opens up Isaiah and says, hey, this is about me. <laughs> and Nazareth, it, it says they reject him. Why? Why do they reject Jesus? Because they grew up around this guy, and here he is coming and preaching at us. Here he is and coming and saying that he is what it's all about. See, Jesus did not fit their preconceived notions, their stereotypes of who he is, and so they rejected him, hated him. That's what could happen. People do not like things that they, 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 that they do not understand. But, 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 do you remember when Jesus calms the storm in the Sea of Galilee? Remember what the disciples say? They say, who is this? That, that the winds and the seas even obey him. And it says, they marveled. They marveled at Jesus. They didn't understand him. They had questions about him. They were curious. They were incited with some sort of wonder. About, and they marveled. That only happens if you get past that first initial phase of being misunderstood. So what's your role? What's your expectations? to glow, to allow your future hope to be so moving, so real to you that it commands your present attitude rather than the circumstances. We don't have the power. We don't have the majority, but we never have. So that's one character in the story, exiles. Who's the other character in the story in this backdrop, in this great narrative? It's everybody else who I'll call undecided, the undecided. So right now, um, it's a badge of honor, I'd say. Like in our, in our current culture, it's a badge of honor to just accept ideas, to be eclectic in your perspective, to just be agreeable and approve. That's a badge of honor right now. Look what it says in verse 4. It says that in this story, what's going to be common is this, that there will be people who run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. But this is a negative idea, not a good idea. Meaning that it's going to be very common for people to just take in knowledge, to seek and search things out, but not with the goal of arriving anywhere, without the goal of committing to everything. Again, it's a badge of honor to be eclectic and to have this perspective that's, that's infused with all sorts of ideas, but not commit to anything. And here's why that's so, so problematic. And hear me out here if you're curious about the claims of Christianity. Here's why that's so problematic, to just take what comes and be agreeable and sure, yes, um, I'm not saying Christians should be jerks or anything like that, but I'm saying there's a problem with just uh, uh, being a chameleon of your environment, 
of just taking in whatever is coming your way. Look what it says in verse 10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. So we're talking about those same people who run to and fro with knowledge increases, with with knowledge increasing. Here's my question. It seems a little harsh to call these people wicked. (laughs) I mean, what's so grievous about people, what's so wicked uh, about people who just, uh, you know, are, are agreeable? who take in all these, certain, these ideas and perspectives, and what's so wrong about that? And here's why. Listen here, please. If you don't have a moral vision for life, if you don't commit to a moral framework for life that has commands and that has limitations and that has absolutes, if you don't adopt that, commit to anything like that in your life, then you know what's going to happen? you're always going to be letting yourself off the hook. And so you'll have superficial change. You'll have circumstantial change. You'll try to people please and please who's around you, but you're not actually changing deep down. You're not actually experiencing true transformation. You're just being a chameleon of your environment because that's what your loose morality has allowed you to do. And so you always let yourself off the hook. You never change. You never become a profound, um, uh, a deeply rich, moral person who has an actual uh, vision for life. You're just lost. You're just groping. And even more tragic, even more tragic, that's happening at a societal level. Bunches and bunches of people who are chameleons of their environment and people-pleasing and just posturing themselves because they have no moral vision for life, no moral framework for life. And so, of course, injustice is going to perpetuate because we're letting each other off the hook, because we don't really mean the things we say in this environment because we say the opposite thing in this environment. See, this is what happens when we don't have a moral framework for life. Things unravel. There is no real flourishing. There is no real deep lasting justice that is achieved. It is only ever just here today and gone tomorrow. And so you'll never experience real transformation and and transformation will not be achieved through you. This is why it's wrong. (laughs) A bad deal to just be agreeable and to just accept whatever happens, whatever ideas come across your way and be eclectic in your perspective because you lack a, a, a framework for a rich moral life. So, of all the competing moral frameworks for life, of all the visions for life that you could choose from, why choose the Christian faith? Why choose the way of Jesus of them all? And that's a long conversation, maybe for another time. I only have the time to give you one answer, and it's this. Because Christianity and Christianity alone gives us a satisfying conclusion to everything. A satisfying conclusion to the end of the story. Look with me in verse 2. Having just written that, Antiochus Epiphanes is going to have a demise. He's going to reach his demise. It says here in verse 2, And many of those who fall asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So 
Daniel was just talking about this deliverance that Israel is going to have after Antiochus Epiphanes is defeated. But now all of a sudden here in verse 2, he shifts to a different kind of deliverance. All of a sudden we're not talking about national deliverance or Israel anymore. We're talking about something far more grand, far more cosmic, it seems. And what I want to do now before giving you the answer to what this verse is talking about exactly is do some biblical theology. In this verse, loaded into this verse, is some rich story behind it. It's This verse 2 is the satisfying conclusion to a great story. Here's the story. Genesis 3 says, after Adam uh, breaks trust with God and disobeys, he says to Adam, you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Death. Now here's what's so, like when I read those words, I feel sadness. You and I should feel sadness because man, humanity was crafted from the dust of the earth. By God himself, he took his time. It was a deliberative process. He breathed into the man the breath of life. That account in Genesis chapter 2 of our origin from the dust should signal to us our destiny as humans. We were created for intense divine fellowship, but now here, the dust is no longer our origin, it's our conclusion. Something very frustrating happens when we observe death. It should not be. And, ra- and, and furthermore, we are told to exercise dominion over the earth in Genesis chapter 2. But here, earth gets the final word over us. It has dominion over us. And so when we read this line here in Genesis 3, you are dust, to dust you shall return, it's a disturbance of our humanity, quite literally. This is a disturbance of your created purpose. We were meant for divine fellowship. We were meant to use our capacity and our intellect to exercise kind, loving care over the created order, but death has disturbed it. Death has frustrated it. So Daniel chapter 12 says that there are some who shall awake from the dust of the earth to everlasting life. Here's what Isaiah 26, 19 says. Look at this with me. It says this. It'll be, it'll be behind me. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Okay, this is eerily similar to what we've read in Daniel chapter 12, verse Two, that bodies will rise from the dust. Bodies will rise from the earth. The earth will give birth to the dead. What are we talking about here? What is Daniel anticipating? What's the satisfying conclusion to the story? It's this. We will resurrect in our bodies. Here's a really wrong idea that we, often, that we get wrong often. Heaven, like being spirits in heaven, that is not our final destination. When we talk about eternity, and hope, those words that are rich in the Bible, that's not it. Heaven is not our final destination. Resurrection is. In fact, our forever and ever, when we talk about that, when the the New Testament especially talks about that, it's a very human experience. It's a physical, bodily experience, except without limitations, without death, without curse and sickness, in immortal and indestructible bodies. That is our hope. That's the satisfying conclusion to this entire story. One last thing that wraps this all up. Romans 8 says this, 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation, the earth, (laughs) is longing for the sons of God to be made clear who they are, who they really are. Let's keep on reading. It says, for creation was subjected to futility. What's the futility? Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What futility, what frustration is creation resigned to being the house of our bodies, our bodies within it? Creation was never meant, earth was never meant to be the house of our bodies. It was subjected to it because of sin. And so earth, creation longs for the day when there will be a resurrection from it so that the true sons of God are revealed. And that's why it ends saying, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Remember Isaiah 26 says, the earth will give birth to its dead. Here Paul is saying that's absolutely right. That's absolutely true. That's the conclusion to this entire story. There will be physical resurrection, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. So it's like here, Israel's restoration that they experience this, this national resurrection they experience after Antiochus Epiphanes falls is just a foreshadowing of the great final resurrection that we in Christ will experience one day. This is the satisfying conclusion to our story. So let me ask a question now, though. Sounds too good to be true. <laughs> Sounds like fantasy, doesn't it? It sounds like this, this is like, this is unreal, right? Let me ask a question here. This, is gonna be, this might be the most provocative thing I say all day. You ready for this? Who's been watching Rings of Power? Anybody at all? I, I know there's mixed reviews, okay? I like it. Taylor doesn't. You know, that's the way it is. It's, you can talk to Taylor about that and try to correct him. But uh, <laughs> fantasy, okay, if there's one genre of entertainment, of storytelling, that's lasted literally forever. It's fantasy, Think about that. Now, why is that the case? Why can we not escape fantasy? It always pops up and it always draws us in. Why is that? It's because fantasy resonates with us at a deeply intuitive level. Fantasy, whether we realize it or not, is very real. Fantasy stories, what do they do? Listen to this. They take us into a world where we survey the depths of space and time, where people do not die, where animals and humans reside together, and even where there are non-humanly creatures and where the limitations of our broken reality are completely lifted. That's fantasy, and we're hooked by it. It draws us in. What conclusion we come to, it can only be that, that that's picking up on something that we know is real that we know we are destined for. So this resonates with us, just like fantasy does. Daniel chapter 12 resonates with us. It's too good to be true, but it is true. This whole thing hinges upon, is this guaranteed? Like, this seems fantastical. Is this real? Is there a guarantee of this? Look at verse 13. It says, but go your way, talking to Daniel, go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. So Daniel is told, Daniel, you will one day be 
physically resurrected, but go your way until then. In other words, Daniel, you're not going to know when it's going to happen. You're not going to be given all the answers. You're going to have to trust a whole lot, yet build your life on this. Build your life on this hope. Let it be the ultimate commanding factor in your entire life that one day you will rise from the dust and live forever and ever, that there is actually a satisfying conclusion to this broken story. We're given that same expectation. This may not happen in our lifetime. It may happen in our lifetime, but it may not. And we are expected, just like Daniel, to build our life on this, that we actually are going to arrive at a happily ever after. That's not all for nothing. That's not all just whatever. (laughs) We don't just born. We're not just born and live and die. There's something so much more at stake. Do we have a guarantee? Is there a guarantee that this is legitimate? And now something eerie is going to take place in the book of Job. He says this, Job 19. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And one day, at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Hmm. So it seems like all of this is wrapped up, all of this hinges upon a redeemer. So do we have a redeemer who gives us, who transfers to us this kind of certainty? Look at Daniel 12, verse 7. The redeemer is here all along. In fact, this vision is just the last part of a vision that's been taking place from Daniel 10, 11, and now here 12. We met back in chapter 10, this angel, this heavenly being in linen, and we've said this is a theophany, an appearance of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Well, in 12 verse 7, he speaks up again. He's there again. Look what it says. And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the people comes to an end, he would bring about the kingdom. So this is Jesus. And what's he doing here? He looks towards heaven, towards the Father, God the Father, and makes a solemn oath. An oath that he will bring this about. What has Jesus done (laughs) to give us any kind of confidence that this oath has been carried out? He sealed this oath. He purchased this oath with his own divine blood. He legitimized it by tasting death in our place. Further, the one he made the oath to, God the Father, gave his stamp of approval on everything Jesus ever said and everything Jesus ever did by what? Raising him from the dead. This oath has been sealed, has been ratified, and presented before you and I 100% true. You can bank your life on it and build your life on it. Think about this. God is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already given us the assurance of. Jesus has died, and Jesus has been resurrected. So now we die to ourselves every single day, And one day, just like Jesus, we will be resurrected by our Heavenly Father and join Him in the ranks of a perfect, spotless, sinless world. That's the conclusion to our story. It's not fantasy. It's not too good to be true. It is real. It's been proven in the death 
and burial and resurrection of Jesus. So we can hope in the satisfying conclusion and let it determine how we live in the present. I'll wrap up this sermon. I'll wrap up this whole entire series by saying this. I've said it before, I think once as an illustration. I'll give it here one last time. When I asked Rebecca to marry me, I wasn't nervous at all. I wasn't uh, in my head at all. Why? I knew she'd say yes. I knew even if I messed up, you know, the speech, that she'd still say yes, okay? No matter what, it was going to happen. My confidence in a future yes, a future promise, gave me confidence in the present. We are exiles. What's going to hold us tight? What's going to give us the power to continue on and accept our role in this very complex story? It's the certainty that we have in Jesus, that he was resurrected, and so will we. As he has gone, we will follow. And so let's be exiles. Let's be exiles and live remarkable, attractive lives that give the words of the gospel credibility by the power of our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is our certainty. He is our promise. He is your pledge to us. And so we ask that you would help us, God, to live lives that are commanded by you, our hope in you. And Lord, none of this would matter. None of this would be worthwhile if it wasn't for Jesus dying in our place absorbing your just wrath for all of our wrongdoing, for all of our people-pleasing, for all of our compromises, so that we could be dressed in his perfect righteousness and be accepted by you. And so we thank you, Father, for your kindness and mercy. We pray in the the name of Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.